The passage we're going to look at tonight is about what do the people of God do when they're waiting on God? And here, remember, Jesus had just ascended to heaven and they were waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit to come. And they didn't even know really what, what, what did that mean? What was it going to look like? They had no idea. They had no idea. All Jesus said was, the Holy Spirit's going to come. And this is a promise for me. So wait. In fact, look at verse 4 of chapter 1 before we go into verse 12. Remember, Jesus said while he was with them, before he left, he said, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait there for what my Father promised. Wait. Let me say something about this before we get into verse 12 through verse 22 tonight. Many times when God calls us to wait for Him to move or change something or work or whatever, He places us in a situation that is not altogether comfortable. Because when you think about it, when He said, I want you to stay or remain in Jerusalem, that was not a comfortable place for the followers of God. That was a place that would have evoked a lot of bad memories. That's where Jesus was crucified. I mean, think think about it very personally. And I don't want to dredge up like really bad memories, but just, just for think about a place that does not bring up good memories for you. A place. Is that some place that you would want to stay? No, you'd probably want to get out of there and move on, right? And yet Jesus says, I want you to stay in Jerusalem. And then not only was it the place where he was crucified and all those bad things happened, but it was also a reminder of their own failure in a sense because they all forsook him or betrayed him or denied him. And then you even have the growing sort of persecution against the followers of Jesus that, were, that was centralized in Jerusalem. So here's God telling his followers, I want you to go back to the most uncomfortable place you could be for a while. And I want you to wait there. Because I want you to trust me that I'm going to work out my purposes starting there. So you've got to stay there and wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon you. Now again... We don't know exactly how long, but it was, it was a season of time that they had to wait there in this place. So the reason I say this is a good passage for us even as a church is because obviously we know now, okay, we've got the loan, we're going to get started on breaking ground in the new year, but we're still waiting for that to actually happen. And sometimes God even sort of shows us, hey, I'm going to do something, but not at this time. Or maybe he's moving in your life in a way that it's like, you know, something else is coming, but it hasn't quite gotten there yet. So what do you and I as followers do? How do we sort of follow the pattern of what they did? Because what they did was really good. They really give us a good example of what do the people of God do when we're waiting on God to move and fulfill promises or to do something in our life. Well, look at verse 12. They returned to Jerusalem from the mountain called the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away, just a short amount of time. 
And when they entered Jerusalem, they went up to the upstairs room where they were staying, Peter and John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, all the 11 disciples, obviously minus Judas Iscariot. The first thing I want us to note in verse 12 is, so what did they do? They obeyed what Jesus told them to do. They went back to Jerusalem and stayed there. So when you and I are in a waiting period, when we're waiting for God to move or work or change something or, or get us to that next place, what do we do? We do what he's already told us to do. We do what he's... You focus on what you know to do, not what you don't know yet. And that's exactly what they did. They, they don't know what it means to have the Holy Spirit come and indwell them. They, they don't know what, how that's going to be manifested, obviously. They don't know anything about that. And Jesus hasn't given them a clue as to what that's all going to be. But what he did say is this. Here's the one thing I want you to do, guys. I want you to go back to Jerusalem and wait there. And that's exactly what they did. So when you and I are in a waiting time, do the things that we already know we should do. And think about this group. The Bible tells us not only was it the 11 disciples that now all came together, but the Bible also tells us that in verse 14, they were with women, and along with those other women was obviously Mary, the mother of Jesus, and then his brothers, who remember we're studying Judah on Sunday morning. They used to not believe in him, and now they do. So there's this group of people there. In fact, it says there, in verse 15, it was probably about 120 people. Can I tell you, that's about a little bit smaller group than what we normally have on Sunday in our auditorium. Started out with 120 people. Now, the other thing I want you to note is this. Notice back up in verse 13, though. They had a designated place, a place that was well known for the followers of Jesus to come and meet. It was this upstairs room where they were staying. And the reason that's important is sometimes we downplay places. And yet even here, before the church, in a sense, was really established, the followers of God had a place where it was like, hey, this is where, we, this is where we're all going to meet. We can't, we're, there's too many of us, 120 to meet in somebody's home. We can't do that. And I truly believe that this upstairs room was the same place where Jesus had the Last Supper. So it was a place that was already a large room, some place that was either in the family of somebody who already followed Jesus, or it was somebody who loaned it to them or rented it to them. But here was a place they all knew, this is where we can go. And this is where we can meet, and this is where we can be together. It's important that... Brothers and sisters in Christ have a designated place. We say, hey, let's meet. Let's, let's get together. And that's what they did. But now notice the key verse, I think, of the whole passage tonight. Verse 14. Again, notice some things that they did. First of all, they continued together. These words speak about being strengthened through staying together. There was a bond between these 120 people. I mean, think about how important that was. Again, remember, Jerusalem was where Jesus was crucified. Jerusalem was where all this hostility against Christ and those who followed him was, was centered. And so the last thing they needed was to feel like they were all alone and that they were going to go through this all by themselves. 
And yet it's so sad that in, in today's world, in this age of individualism Christianity, where people isolate themselves from their brothers and sisters in Christ, and we don't come together as much as we should, and even the book of Hebrews says that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, that here in the early days of the formation of the church, what were they doing even before Pentecost, even before the Holy Spirit was poured out on them, even before the church was officially established, they were getting together in a designated place, and they were being strengthened by being with one another. As I've told you before, I get that from you all. When I'm with you all, whether individually or, or you know, in groups, of it, I am strengthened in your presence. Hopefully you feel that way about me as well, because that's the way it's supposed to be. That when we come together, we build each other up and we strengthen each other by simply being together. It's a reminder to us that we're not in this world, you know, sort of trying to navigate this world and that we're the only ones that think the way we do and believe the way we do and and want to live for God the way we do and want to sing and worship and all that. No, there's others like us. And that's just... And, and, all the more so, obviously, in the days of Acts where there was this growing persecution and hostility against the church and there would be as time continued. We know that a few chapters in. Who gets stoned? Stephen. You know, so there's this... They needed to be with each other, to encourage each other. And in the day and age in which we live, we need each other even more so now because the world is a crazy place and, and it's so broken and, and, and there's so much hopelessness out there. Christians need to get together. And we need to make time to be with one another so that we can be strengthened. But that's not where it stops. They don't just come together to come together. Notice what else they do. As they're continuing together, they're praying. They're praying. And I want to make this point. All of them were praying. The men and the women. That's very um, much taught in the original language that maybe is lost in the English translation. The women were praying too. You see, in public. As part of this prayer meeting. Because remember now, for the very first time in three years, Jesus physically isn't with them. And so, what are they trying to do to reconnect with Jesus? Well, they're trying to come together with others who believe in Him. And they're praying. They are a praying church. They are a praying group of people who are turning to God and they're persevering in prayer and they're just praying, God, we don't know when this promise is going to be fulfilled and how it's going to be manifest and all that, but God, we're just seeking you and we're turning to you and we want to keep these lines of communication with you open. That's what all of us should do when we're waiting on God. Be strengthened through fellowship with each other and be in prayer. And not just individually, but pray with one another. It's so important. I love the fact on Sunday that, you know, Dave and others gather there outside the lobby and they're praying over the service. And when we get a chance, I know Nicole and I and Crystal try to get together and pray. And just specifically to share with you, this last Sunday, I, 
I was telling Nicole before the service, I said, I'm, I had a rough week. She said, well, let's pray, you know. And she, she just prayed over me and over the certain stuff. And I, it, just, it was just like God strengthened me through that. That's what they were doing. And that's what God calls us to do when we're waiting on God. Continue together and pray with one another. And then, notice this, they prayed with one mind. That's even amazing. Because it's one thing to... It's one thing to be together. But how about all being of the same mind? And all that means is they were united in passion and purpose. I was reminded of this too when even the, Nicole was praying there about Thanksgiving. You can have a group of people together, but they're not of one mind. In other words, you, you can occupy the same space with other human beings, but not be of one mind. That's what made this group so distinct. And that's what God calls his people to be, is he not only wants us to be together and occupy the same space, he wants us to be of one mind, united in our passion and purpose of why we're together and what, are, what is our goal, what is our vision, what are, what are we all about? And so many times as groups of Christians, that's hard to come by. I mean, we can get everybody in the church together and occupy the same space, but to have everybody united in passion and purpose, that's a whole different story. And yet that was them. Because at this point, all they were focused on was, okay, God, we're just going to do what you've told us to do. We're going back to Jerusalem. We're waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit to come. And I don't even think, because the text doesn't really, you know, say this. I don't even think that they necessarily were always praying for the Holy Spirit to come. I I think they were just praying. And that they knew they had to stick together and be there for each other and build each other up and strengthen each other. And, and, you know, and also worship. We're going to see that in a moment. So what do we do when we're waiting on God? Good stuff here. Then, notice verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a gathering of about 120 people, and said, I love this. The words stood up literally means Peter began rising. Now, I want you to keep your finger there in Acts chapter 1. I want you to go back to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Because what is happening here is a a fulfillment of exactly what Jesus said to Peter back in Luke 22, verses 31 and 32. Listen to these words of Jesus to Simon Peter in Luke 22, 31 and 32. He says, Simon, Simon, pay attention. Satan has demanded to have you all to sift you like wheat. Jesus says, do you realize Satan wants to shake you all, all 12 of you, to the core and turn your world and your faith upside down? But notice what Jesus says to Peter. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And and what that means is not that obviously he wouldn't deny him. He did deny him. It meant that his faith would not ultimately fail, fail so much that it could never be recovered. 
And then notice these next words. This is exactly what's happening in Acts chapter 1 now. And when you have turned back, when you have come back, strengthen your brothers. Here's the same man who even before now the Spirit of God indwells him. You can go back to Acts chapter 1. Even before the Spirit of God indwells him, Peter's a different person. Because even though the Spirit has not yet indwelled him, the Spirit is certainly influencing him. And here's the man that just a few days earlier was denying Jesus, and now he's rising. He's stepping up. He's stepping forward. He's, he's taking that leadership, if you will, that God has called him to. And now it's not only about him, it's about knowing, I've got to do this for my brothers and sisters. I've got to be who God created me and called me to be. And he begins rising. Do you know... Again, why this, is, this was so cool to me as the pastor of this church is because I feel that that's one of the things that God wants to see happening in our church over this next year. He wants to see people in our church begin to rise and begin to step up a little bit and step forward a little bit from where they've been and, and maybe move into some kind of ministry and service or take a higher level of ministry and service and step up and begin rising you see, that's so important. And that's part of what was happening as they were preparing for Pentecost. Was not only Peter, but others began to step up and step forward like never before and take on some responsibility that was going to be needed if the church was to get off on the right foot and be strong. And that's exactly what you see here. And then something else. Notice verse 16. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled that the Holy Spirit foretold through David concerning Judas. And now Peter is telling us a couple things here. First of all, what has Peter been doing all these days since Jesus ascended? He's been in the Word, he's been in Scripture. He's been immersing himself in Scripture. And not only that, but the Psalms, or the, the, excuse me, the Scriptures that he quotes here, another one down in verse 20 that we're going to get to in a moment, they're both from the Psalms. So what that tells me too is that Peter is not only in the Scripture, he's worshiping. Why? Because remember, the Psalms were the Jewish hymnal or songbook. And Jews back then didn't just like we do today, the Gentiles, we just read the Psalms. They didn't read the Psalms. I mean, we just studied 15 of the Psalms of Ascent. They sang the Psalms. And they were, they were worship songs for them. So Peter is not only telling us, I've been in the Word waiting, but I've been worshiping through the Word while I'm waiting. And God's been giving me insight as I worship Him and as I spread out the Word before myself. And I realized something as I was in the Word that the Bible told that when Judas betrayed Jesus, we were going to have to find a replacement. So one of the things that we see the church doing here is this, led by Peter. Whatever they discovered in the Word of God, they did it. If the Word of God said, this is what you need to do, 
Then they tried to implement it from the very beginning. Peter says, hey, guess what, guys? Judas betrayed Jesus, and that was foretold in the Bible. And the Bible said he needs to be replaced. That position needs to be replaced. We're going to get to that in just a moment. Now, the other thing I want you to see is this. Notice what Peter says very importantly in verse 16. Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled that who foretold? The Holy Spirit. You know what Peter's saying there? The Holy Spirit wrote the Old Testament and the Holy Spirit speaks through His Word. Now keep your finger there in Acts and go over to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 because Peter actually amplifies this point in his own letter of 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. Notice what Peter writes here. For no prophecy was ever born of human impulse. Rather, men carried along by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Peter's saying, these weren't men's words. These are God's words. And that God, the Holy Spirit, was speaking through these men. You know, we're talking here about preparation for Pentecost and we're using this five-week series on Wednesday night as a foundation for our series on the Holy Spirit. And what the first couple of chapters of Acts teaches about the Holy Spirit is so key. You know, the Holy Spirit isn't just a New Testament phenomenon. The Holy Spirit's been around ever since the creation of the world. In fact, the Bible tells us in Genesis 1 that it was the Holy Spirit who was hovering over the darkness and void before God spoke it into creation. It was the Holy Spirit who was moving at that point. And it's the Holy Spirit who was speaking through the Old Testament Scriptures and the Old Testament prophets. And so for Peter, this isn't man's Word. This is God's Word. This is God the Holy Spirit. Spirit. And so he even had that understanding, at least, of the Holy Spirit to this point, even as a, a person who hasn't yet even been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Very important point. And then he goes on to say this back in Acts chapter 1. I'm just going to pick it up again in verse 16. Brothers, the Scriptures had to be fulfilled that the Holy Spirit foretold through David concerning Judas who became the guide for those who arrested Jesus, for he was counted as one of us, received a share in this ministry. And yet this man Judas acquired a field with the reward of his unjust deed. Falling headfirst, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. And this became known to all who live in Jerusalem. Again, why is Luke telling us this? Because he wants to establish this as historical fact. Everybody in Jerusalem knew how Judas committed suicide and how his body then, after hanging there for several days because he did it over the Sabbath, that nobody was going to touch or defile that body while, while it was during the Sabbath day, that by the time they got back to the body, the body had sort of rotted, and by the time it fell on the ground, it literally burst open. Sort of a, you know, terrible, terrible way to end his life, if you will. And here's the sad thing. 
And this is something I think the Bible wants to remind us of, and it ties in with even the message from Sunday, or this coming Sunday. What a lost opportunity. Judas, he walked with Jesus for three years. Nobody was physically closer to Jesus than Judas. He had as much access. He saw all the miracles of Jesus. He saw everything. He experienced everything the other 11 did. And yet, what a lost opportunity. It never made a difference in his heart. It never truly changed. He never came to a point of true faith and belief in Jesus. He was just sort of along for the ride. And it reminds us, and we're going to again talk about this Sunday, that, that again, there can be people amongst us who are sort of there and they experience everything we do, but God never really gets a hold of their heart or they never give their heart truly over to God. What a lost opportunity. Judas could have been this amazing servant of God. But he threw it all away. And so Peter says, look, Jesus told us that he would build the church. So we can't let this position open. We've got to fill it. Because it's very significant, too, in the Bible, and they knew this from the Scriptures, that if if God was going to establish uh, His kingdom upon the heads of the twelve tribes of Israel, that twelve is a key number in the Bible, that He also was going to establish His church upon the twelve apostles. And so there had to be somebody that stepped in and restored it to its full complement of twelve. And so notice verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms. Again, where's Peter pointing everybody back to? The Word and the Psalms. So that they can continue to gain insight and continue to worship God through... To me, it's very significant that the passages that Peter quotes here, out of all the Old Testament, were the Psalms. He went to the... He was struggling, obviously. Jesus was gone now. When was Jesus coming back? When would he establish his kingdom? They asked him. They had all kinds of unanswered questions. There was all kinds of uncertainty and I'm sure trepidation and fear and all this. What's going to happen to us? And what's it mean to have the Holy Spirit come? And yet, where did he go? He went to the Psalms. He went to the Psalms for two reasons. He wanted to gain insight because he knew that was God speaking. But it was also his way of being able to worship during a time of great uncertainty. It's a good lesson for us. What do we do when we are waiting on God? Worship. Get into the Word. Pray. Get with other Christians. It's exactly what they did as they were waiting on God to fulfill His promise. And then he quotes the psalm this way. Let his house become deserted, verse 20, and let there be no one to live in it, and let another take his position of responsibility. So they did four things. And I'll wrap it up with these four things. And one of the most important things that, again, we will be doing as a church, have been for the last seven and a half years, and will continue to do as we move into this new season of ministry, is to put the right people in the right positions in the right places. It's one of the most important things that any of us ever do in our lives. Is if we're in some kind of you know, management leadership position is getting the right people 
in the right place. And that's what they started to do here. Now, three of the things that they did, we can, in a sense, copy or follow their example. The one thing changes. Because the casting of lots that they do here to determine which one of these men will take Judas's place was never seen again in the Bible after this time in Acts. After the Holy Spirit comes and indwells them, you never see the people of God turning to casting lots to trying to make a decision about God's will in their life. It was an okay thing in the Old Testament, and it was an okay thing in the early chapters of Acts because Acts was a transitional book, transitioning us from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. But once the Holy Spirit came, God never put his stamp of approval on the casting of lots ever again. But he does put his stamp of approval on these other things. First thing that they did was they set parameters or criteria for who they were looking for. Notice what they say in verse 21. And this is so important. It's like a job description. It's like putting out, here's who we're looking for. Who is it? Well, we're looking for somebody who has noticed, accompanied us during all the time the Lord Jesus associated with us. Two things there. First of all, they had to have first-hand knowledge themselves about Jesus as they walked with Jesus themselves, and they had to make sure that they did it in the company of others. The others had to know them. Because you can't give somebody greater leadership and, and greater prominence in any organization if you don't know them and, and you don't know how they're going to act in certain situations and all that. They've got to be a part of us for a while. You can't just bring somebody new in from the outside and then elevate them to some great... That always usually blows up and is really bad. And yet churches do it all the time. That's why I have said from the very beginning as... As much as we possibly can, we will look from within first for people to fulfill things before we ever go outside. And that's exactly what they did. That was the parameter. Had to be somebody that knew the Lord, obviously, and walked with him, but also with us as well. Beginning, verse 22, from his baptism by John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness of his resurrection together with us. So that, that's, the, that's the criteria. That's the parameter. But then notice the proposals. Verse 23. In a sense, there was a nomination process. Well, who, who fits that parameter? Who, who fits the criteria? They found two candidates. Joseph, called Barsabbas, and then also Matthias. And then what did they do? So they, they had a parameter. Here's who we're looking for. Here's who fits that. But now guess what? We've got to pray. We've got to seek the Lord. And that's what they did. They turned to God, verse 24. Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show us which one of these two you have chosen. Remember, it's not about then, and this prayer points this out, it's not who we want, God. All we want in this position is who you want. That's all we care about. Not who we think is best, but who you think is best. Because you know the heart. And obviously, Judas fooled us all. So we don't want to repeat that again. So God, you show us who you want. So we had the parameter, the proposal, the prayer, and then the providence of God. Because they did, at this point, cast lots. Verse 26. 
and the one chosen was Matthias. So he was counted now with the other eleven. All it meant to cast lots in those days was they would write the names of each individual on a stone. They would put those stones in a bag, they would shake the bag up, and they would roll it out, and whichever stone or name came out first, that was it. And they just said, God is sovereign. He'll roll out which one he wants. And they didn't question it. And notice, they didn't say after Matthias' name came out first, can we do two out of three? Because if you're going to trust in the sovereignty and providence of God, then you've got to just go with whatever one comes. You can't second guess it if you're truly trusting in the Lord. And that's what they did. That's what they did. I love this passage. Because it's really practical as we see these early followers of God preparing for Pentecost. Preparation is so important. What are we doing in the meantime, in the waiting time? We can always do something. You know, sometimes Christians get to the point like, well, I can't do anything. Yeah, we always can do something. First of all, no matter where we are in our life and what we're waiting on God to do, we can always get together with each other. What's preventing us from that? We can always pray. We can always be in the Scriptures and we can always be worshiping God. Those are things we can always be doing. So God is saying to us, in this time, this is what I want you to do as you wait. And hopefully, just like it was in these days, we will also, in this waiting time, begin to see some people rising like Peter. People standing up and stepping up and assuming greater levels of responsibility within the kingdom. Guys, I was blessed by our worship tonight. I could have went home after that, but I'm glad you stayed to listen to the word tonight as well. And I believe God will have a special blessing on you. You know, I was sharing, I think, with Debbie before that the Wednesday before Thanksgiving and then the Sunday after Thanksgiving, which will be this next Sunday, are usually two of our lowest attendances of the whole year. It just is. That doesn't mean we're going to stop having it. Okay? We're going to keep on keeping on. And I think as the years roll on, we'll have bigger and bigger groups, even on Wednesday before Thanksgiving. People will be just, you know what? The turkey and the stuffing can wait. We're, we're going to go and be together and be strengthened together. And maybe it would even make their Thursday Thanksgiving a little bit better if they came. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for, Lord, giving us such insight and encouragement, God, that we can apply to our own life because all of us, all of us, God, have seasons and times in our life where we're just waiting on you. We're waiting on you to do the next thing. And sometimes we get discouraged because we think there's nothing we can do, but, God, this passage reminds us there's always, always something the people of God can do. We can always continue together. We can always continue together in prayer we can always continue together in prayer in one accord or with one mind. We can always be in the Scriptures. And we can always be worshiping you. God, may this help us, especially here at the Oasis over this next year, that maybe when we don't know what to do, we go back and be reminded of what they did here in the book of Acts as they prepared for the Holy Spirit to come. Next week, God, the Holy Spirit will fall. And we're going to see an amazing passage next week as we look at the coming of the Holy Spirit. 
God, thank you for this time together, this precious time that we have together as God's people. Bless these folks as they go home and give them a wonderful Thanksgiving tomorrow with family and friends. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Thanks for being here.